This is the Monday, June 13th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, we're marching back in time to the days when America tore itself apart, the Civil War. But we'll be talking about a different sort of union, the bond between the men who led the Northern armies and the women by their sides. Here to discuss where military careers met matrimony is Candace Shy Hooper, author of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, for better and for worse. Incredibly, the book marks the first time anyone has mapped the wartime travels of Julia Grant, Nellie McClellan, Jesse Fremont, and Ellen Sherman. John C. Fremont was the Republican Party's very first presidential candidate in 1856, serving in uniform before secession and during the conflict. George B. McClellan and Ulysses S. Grant, both generals-in-chief of the U.S. Army, and they both ran for president. William Tecumseh Sherman's march to the sea fulfilled his pledge to make Georgia howl, and he resisted a short ticket to follow Grant into the White House with the now-famous line, If nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. We know those generals well in our nation's history, so well that they're identified just by their last names. Grant, McClellan, Fremont, Sherman. But to borrow a chapter title from today's book, the woman who is known only through a man is known wrong. Candace Shy Hooper is just the person to give us the full picture of Julia, Nellie, Jesse, and Ellen. She's on the board of advisors of President Lincoln's Cottage at the National Soldiers' Home and a member of the Ulysses S. and Julia Grant Historical Home Advisory Board. She holds an MA in History from George Washington University, And you've seen her work in the New York Times, the Journal of Military History, and wherever fine writing is found. For more on her unique perspective, visit CandiceShyHooper.com. Okay, now that we've bivouacked, let's meet Lincoln's General's Wives. I'm joined on the line by Candice Shy Hooper, author of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and for Worse. Thank you for taking the time to speak with the History Author Show. Thank you, Dean. I really enjoy your show. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you going back and listening to some of the episodes and seeing what it is that we try to do here and have a fun conversation about interesting books. Your book is certainly that. I started it and I said, there's so much here. 
And not to say that it's a heavy book, not to say that it's very long or you're going to be not able to get through it. It moves at a great pace. And so I said, well, gosh, I'm going to sit down and interview this author about Lincoln's general's wives. There you're already talking about eight people plus the president and his wife. So that's, so I said, well, it has so many lovely stories that listeners are just going to have to hopefully be tempted to go and pick it up and enjoy all of the stories that are in here. So that brings me to the story of how your book came about. And in your acknowledgments, you talk about this. So share that with the listeners. This is an ambitious project for a first book. Who and what pushed you to the challenge of distilling these four fascinating lives into a single narrative? one that holds the interest of not just scholars, but also somebody who just loves history and wants to pick up this book. Well, I'm so glad you read the acknowledgments. I have so many people to thank, and that was really the part of the book that I enjoyed writing the most. But the story is that I went back to school in 2006 at the age of 55 to study military history. And as I say in the acknowledgments, when I graduated with a master's degree in 2008, I didn't know quite what to do with it. I thought I might write an article for a scholarly or academic journal about military wives during the Civil War who traveled to the White House from all over the country, or the North, to ask President Lincoln for help with their husbands' careers. I'd read some bits about it here and there in a class I took, and I found it really interesting, but I didn't know if anybody else would be interested in it. So I asked two men both of whose judgment and knowledge of military history I respect. And each of them told me, independent of the other, that there was a book in this, not just an article, and I should set about writing a book. So, Dean, now that the book is published, I've almost forgiven my friends for launching me into this eight-year project. <laughs> now, one reason this would have been an intimidating project for you to take on is there have been 70,000 books on the Civil War since it ended. You wrote that in your book, and then I did a little math. That's 40 every month nearly. It's 38 and change every single month since 1865, since the war ended. So that's incredible. And there is a lot of focus on Confederate women. We've seen a lot of those made into films even. So why did it take 150 years to produce a book like Lincoln's General's Wives? Well, I really wondered that myself. Most of the books about women during the Civil War are about Confederate women, as you said. The ones about Union women mostly focus on those who, in the 19th century terms, stepped outside their spheres. There are lots of references to women who disguised themselves as soldiers and joined the army. There are women as spies. There are pioneering women as nurses even a doctor, and a number of really very fine books give us an overview of how women's lives changed as a result of the changes that the war wrought in our society over those four years. But in all of the reading that I did, I couldn't find any books that focused like a laser on how Union women, in their roles as wives of senior military leaders, influenced the course of the war whether it was through their relationships with their husband or through their own political views and opinions of the president of the United States. So in all the books I read, it seemed like these wives were the missing piece of the general's story, sort of like what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. 
Who knew, for example, that Grant had a streak of humor when he says he hired John Rawlins as his chief of staff, quote, to do the swearing for both of us, unquote. You get a sense of that. Fremont was the one who gave the clever name Golden Gate to the entrance to San Francisco Harbor, long before there was a bridge by that name, of course. And Sherman facetiously, but presciently, compared himself to a Shakespeare character. Now, George McClellan, too, could be very funny and humorously self-deprecating. And when he once wrote Nellie that reports of his death in a battle were untrue, he telegraphed her, I haven't died once yet. The women are all equally entertaining. Jessie's famous even today for her wit and her charm. It's when she once wrote that she and Nellie would be attending an event, quote, in full bloom with generals attached. And Julia Pokes funded herself time and again with stories about her disasters in the kitchen when she had only northern cooks to make southern biscuit or her fear that the war would be over before she could finish knitting some socks for soldiers. And Ellen could turn a phrase with the best of them. She sent zingers back to Sherman when he complained about her gaining weight by telling her that she and Julia had been weighed at the White House. And she was, quote, not a monstrosity yet or in any danger of dying from mere fat, unquote. But I like to think that rather than me finding this subject, that the subject found me, as I think is often the case with authors who write books. I think that there was a reason I was the right person in the right place at the right time to write this book. I was a wife of 30 plus years with a career in politics and lobbying and make no bones about it. That's what those women were doing in their meetings with Lincoln. They were lobbying him. And I grew up in a military family. My father was a hospital corpsman. And as a result of that, my mom had what's called the toughest job in the Navy, that of a Navy wife. As a Navy brat, I knew the strength and the sacrifices that she made as she followed my dad all over the world with four kids in tow. And I knew that the wives of these generals had to have played an important role in their careers, in their successes, and in their failures. So this is what it was, 150 years. They were waiting for you to tell their story. And I want people to understand that this is so much more than just a compilation of other biographies. You mentioned, for instance, Julia Grant and Ulysses S. Grant, them riding on horseback. That's on their coin. And I love the idea that you can pull a coin out and know the story behind why they're on horseback, things like that. You talk about Lincoln as well. I mean, his is the first name in the book. We are so used to seeing him looking very dour. Part of it's the photography technology of the Victorian era. But he enjoys meeting with military wives. It's one of the parts of the job where he's suffering so much and seeing so much misery that he actually enjoys, at least for the most part. There's some conflict that we're going to get into, which also makes the story move. Through that lens, let's start off with the first wife, and that's Jesse Fremont, who John C. Fremont listened to even over the advice of wise men, as you put it in the book. First off, why did she have what was then a man's name? And second, how did she get along when she's in there trying to lobby the president as an advocate for her husband's career? Well, Lincoln certainly did enjoy it when pretty women came to meet him to plead their husband's case for promotion or not to be shot because they'd been accused of desertion. And he wrote about it. But in Jesse's case, her father was Thomas Hart Benton. He was a senator from Missouri. He was one of the first senators from Missouri. And he was that for most of his career. 
who's a man of really towering intellect and integrity. And he was convinced that his second child was going to be a boy. So he decided to name him after his father, Jesse. But when his wife presented him with a daughter instead, Thomas Hart Benton stubbornly stuck with the name. He just changed the spelling. Her name is spelled J-E-S-S-I-E instead of J-E-S-S-E. Her father then proceeded to educate her like a man. By the time she was a teenager, she spoke three languages and read Greek and Latin. She not only was taught well by him, but she inherited his stubborn streak and his love of politics. All of that together was a very bad prescription for a happy young woman in the 19th century, when women's roles were, in that Victorian society, really confined to home and hearth. I wanted to get at Nellie McClellan's choice of address at what you call the most famous party of the Civil War. And that brings us back to Jessie a little bit because we see this through her eyes. Tell that story and how Jessie Fremont, this headstrong woman, which I don't mean as an epithet, but I'm sure that they would have thought that at the time, as you said, of stepping out of your station, a boy really raised to be as assertive as a man in this era. Tell us this story and how Jessie reacts to it. That's a great story. It might surprise some readers to know how important fashion was and how seriously fashions were scrutinized and very often criticized during the Civil War. The story of the dress takes place in February of 1862 when Mary Lincoln threw the most famous party of the Civil War. She had just redecorated the executive mansion and she invited 500 of Washington's most exalted residents to her reception to show her redecorating off. And they included General John Fremont and Jesse and General George McClellan and Nellie. The Fremonts weren't happy at the party. John had been relieved of his command in Missouri by Lincoln in November, and it wasn't clear yet whether or when he would get another command. So they decided to leave early. But Lincoln sent Secretary of State Seward rushing after them to grab them as they were retrieving their cloaks because he wanted them to meet the McClellans. Now, George and Nellie McClellan had everything at that point that the Fremonts wanted. George was general in chief of all of the armies of the United States, and Nellie was his beautiful, vivacious young wife. But when Jesse saw Nellie coming down the hall, as she wrote 30 years later, and I'll quote this from the book and from her memoirs, one look showed me she was dressed in secession colors. A band of scarlet velvet crossed her white dress from shoulder to waist, and in her hair there were three feathers of scarlet and white. If this was intentional, it was unpardonable in the wife of the commander-in-chief of the Union Army, and yet it seemed impossible to have been an accident, unquote. After Lincoln's inauguration, the march before as president, red and white color schemes were banned in the state of Maryland as secession colors fearing that they might incite violence. Apparently, red and white worn together were also suspect in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Of course, Jesse, whom you get to know in the book, was never one to let something like that slip by. But as I reveal in the book, red was in fact George McClellan's favorite color. So she may have been trying to please her husband by wearing a red and white dress. On the other hand, as I also discuss in detail, the man whom she had loved and had hoped to marry until her parents derailed their engagement was Ambrose Powell Hill, 
who was on that very February evening in 1862, a general in the Confederate Army, fighting under a flag with those secession colors Nellie was wearing. That's always an interesting link there with A.P. Hill. And I found myself shocked and I jumped a bunch of times reading your book and I had many emotions, but I really jumped at that, the way that her parents choose to go about that. And I think what, three out of four of these women, their parents were opposed to them marrying a military man. They just didn't want them to have a military life, which I think even today, people that are in the military, even career military can relate to. There's often opposition to the life that you had growing up. You know that you're going to be traveling and the children are going to be pulled out of school a lot. And people are a little wary of that life, I think, still, much less in those days where you might go four years without seeing your wife like the the grants do at one point. That's really true. So much that is interesting about this book lies in the stories of how these men and women came together and came to be married, and then how they proceed from there. But in so many of these cases, the fathers were opposed to the choice of a husband. It just makes it that much more poignant as they fight through the Civil War, fighting to keep their marriages together. The subtitle of your book, Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War for Better and for Worse. I want to talk about that and for worse part. As far as General Fremont and General McClellan, both kind of squandering this chance Lincoln gives them to be in command and how their wives deal with that. So talk a little bit about that for worse part that Jesse and Nellie bring to their husband's careers in the Civil War. Well, thank you for asking about that, because one of the things that I found as I began to do this research was that so often any biography of any of these women was wholly complimentary. Their biographers fell in love with them, stayed in love with them, and wrote the books in that vein. And I really tried to bring a more critical, not in the sense of derogatory, but in the sense of analysis, look at these four women. As you said, McClellan and Fremont were both two of Lincoln's first appointments to the grade of Major General in May of 1861, just one month after the war began. But by the end of 1862, neither man commanded any troops in the field at all. They had both been relieved by Lincoln. I don't blame their wives for their military failure, but I do argue that they were responsible in some ways for accelerating their exit from command. Jesse and Nellie both encourage the worst in their husband's characters. And I think that's really the point that comes out in the book. Both encouraged their husbands to disdain, even ignore Lincoln. And Lincoln was making every effort to understand and support these two difficult generals for month after month after month. And that was the wives' biggest worst. They also encouraged their husbands every time they threatened to leave the field. Nellie even encouraged her husband not to obey General Halleck, his commanding officer, who was transmitting orders from the president to General McClellan. Jessie's style was aggressive. She assumed what I call tactical control of Fremont's career. She was almost like a stage mother for her husband, even when he was a major general in the United States Army. Whenever he got a command, she went with him. She selected the headquarters building. She set herself up at a desk outside his door as his virtual chief of staff. In fact, there was one quote about them in St. Louis that she was the better man of the two. One of Fremont's biggest problems was always his isolation from the local population, 
from visiting dignitaries and from his own troops. Grant had a hard time even getting in to see him when Fremont called for him to come. And Jessie oversaw it all from her privileged position in his office. Her ill-planned and even worse executed visit to Lincoln about Fremont's emancipation order was bad enough. But then she encouraged her husband to distribute copies of the order even after Lincoln had asked him twice to revoke it and ordered him to. And she encouraged her husband to believe he was the target of conspiracy. She sent telegrams in cipher. She compared his situation to that of George Washington when he was surrounded by a cabal. Now, Nellie, on the other hand, had a more passive but equally lethal approach to her husband's career. She encouraged his every wish, even supporting his desire to leave the army after Lincoln's preliminary emancipation proclamation, which he did not think was a good idea. She was detached from his work and detached really from the whole war that was engulfing the nation. She didn't participate in the welfare organizations that were the woman's work of the era. She didn't visit military hospitals until her husband really encouraged her. She fled to New York and Hartford, Connecticut to get away from criticism of her husband in Washington, where she gave parties and was entertained and entertained. And then she allowed his very personal private correspondence containing derogatory opinions of all of the civilian and military leadership to be published to the world after her husband's death. You write in the book about that, and you say, if Jesse Fremont fought too hard for her husband, Nellie McClellan fought not at all. That's an exact quote out of your book. And I thought the two of them are very compelling and also perplexing, especially how we see to this day the blow that Nellie McClellan delivers to her husband's legacy is still felt today. I mean, my Parents live on a street that's named McClellan, and I always think, oh, right, that guy. There's going to be traffic on the street, and it just won't move anywhere and that kind of thing. So, <laughs> so it really was a perplexing thing or a head-scratcher. She didn't pay the attention, and she ignored his expressed wishes that she keep these sorts of things quiet, and they end up getting published. She just kind of hands them over to his uh, her literary executor. These letters bring us to another big part of this book. And that's that in Lincoln's General's Wives, letters play a huge part, but also a big story is the letters that aren't written. And those are between Ulysses S. Grant and his wife, Julia, and he's literally begging her to write him back. You put up a couple of montages there in your books just of these really heartbreaking things that Grant writes, just begging her, write me, tell me, answer some of my questions. And it's hard to remain neutral when you look at that. One saving grace, though, there for Julia is that she had strabismus, that she had a misalignment of her eyes. And not only did that make it hard for her to read, correct, but it also meant she was very indulged and treated with kid gloves as a child and didn't really develop the self-discipline that would have been necessary to write letters. So discuss that a little bit, how these vision problems impacted Julia's personality and her courtship with Grant. And that'll get us back there to the horses, too, their mornings on horseback, so to speak. Well, Julia's eye defect, which is called strabismus, gave her the outward appearance of having crossed eyes. And every biographer of Grant, and certainly all of hers, always comment on it. But most of them don't really go any farther than that and just say, well, she always wanted to be photographed in profile so that you couldn't see both of her eyes and see that they were crossed. I wanted to go deeper into that. I wanted to understand 
what was going on there for a child who was born with crossed eyes. I was fortunate to have been twigged to a neuroscientist who was born with strabismus by the famous Dr. Oliver Sacks, who wrote about Stereo Sue in the New Yorker magazine many years ago. And as I was just writing this book, Stereo Sue published her own memoirs, and I saw a review of it in the Washington Post. History is nothing if not serendipitous. <laughs> in that review, she tells about her journey as a child with strabismus and how she didn't even learn that she was unable to see in three dimensions until she was in college studying neuroscience. But what she does tell you in her memoir, and she was really gracious enough to answer some questions for me by email, she said that when a child is born with strabismus, that they see two of everything before their brains learn to adjust and rule out one image. Now, some always see two images, but they learn to only focus on one. But during that early time in their lives, they are fussy little babies because they can't grasp objects that seem to be floating around in front of them. They have little or no depth perception, so they often fall. They're slow to learn to walk. And later in their childhood, they have trouble reading and writing. And they do not always have good, even two-dimensional eyesight much less three-dimensional eyesight. So it is difficult for them to read and write, although it's possible. Julia demonstrated all of these problems as a child when she talks about her childhood in her memoir. But to most readers, her memoirs sound like she was just a pampered young woman. But if you know she has strabismus, and we know that she did, when you read her stories of the slave children sent by her father to watch over her as she played along the creek, or of her brothers carrying her to school so she won't fall, or of her teachers telling her not to worry about not learning her lessons, you immediately grasp that Julia was never encouraged to overcome her disability. She was never disciplined. She never learned the value of self-discipline. So in the short term, her strabismus probably brought Grant closer to her. He was a shy young man who would have been intimidated by beautiful, aggressive young women like Nellie Marcy or Mary Todd. And Julia's crossed eyes made her very self-conscious and shy at first, and also made courtship on horseback most enjoyable. She was an excellent horsewoman, and riding alongside Ulysses, she could hide one of her eyes from him and feel far less self-conscious. In fact, in both of their memoirs, descriptions of their courtship always dissolve into wonderful memories of them riding along the Gravewalk Creek near her home outside St. Louis. And you're right that an image of them riding on horseback is on the back of the Julia Grant first spouse coin, but nowhere is there an explanation of why that was so important. So in the short term, then her strabismus brought them together. In the middle term, I argue, her lack of discipline that was spawned by her eye defect and by her family's constant pampering of her, wrought disaster on Grant. She rarely wrote to him before or after they were married. Now, she could write. We know she could write, but she didn't. She was not disciplined enough to do it. And he suffered dreadfully from the lack of tangible expressions in letters of her love. He got depressed. He drank. And in 1854, he resigned from the Army because he could not bear to be isolated from her and his family. But in the long term, her strabismus 
proved a strength for them because having gone through that time when she wasn't writing, he determined that he would keep her close to him as he could during the Civil War. And she was game to do it. Remarkably, she didn't want to write a letter, but she was willing to travel 10,000 miles during the Civil War to be with her husband. I want to get back in a moment to Julia's eyesight and the travels that she makes. You mark those in maps throughout Lincoln's General's Wives. Again, my guest is Candace Shy Hooper, and the book is Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, For Better and For Worse. For some pictures of the women behind the grand names of the Grand Army, visit her website, CandiceShyHooper.com. Catherine Clinton, author of Mrs. Lincoln, A Life, writes, quote, Candace Hooper's vivid do look at the lives of these Union generals' wives writes a hidden chapter of Civil War history. Brimming with rich detail, Hooper's brisk and beguiling narrative weaves together the military and the personal to introduce a fascinating cast of characters. Among that fascinating cast of characters, Candace, is Mary Lincoln, She suffered from maladies that impacted her behavior. People are probably familiar with some of those. But how does she feel here during the war about these women interacting with her husband? We discussed how Lincoln liked to interact with them. But how did Mary feel about it, for instance, when Julia Grant simply pays the president a compliment? Well, Mary Lincoln did suffer from various maladies. But she was also a smart, politically astute, beautiful, and socially savvy woman who married a smart, politically astute, homely, and socially awkward man. She loved him, and she saw greatness in Abraham Lincoln, which has always been considered by her biographers and many of his as a sign of her own political astuteness. She knew that her husband was a man to be admired. She just didn't want other women to admire him or to be admired by him. She was a very jealous woman, Dean. Her African-American dressmaker, the famous Elizabeth Keckley, wrote in her memoirs that the biggest mistake any woman could make was to compliment Abraham Lincoln in front of his wife. And Julia Grant did just that very thing two weeks before Lincoln was assassinated, when the Lincolns were visiting Grant's headquarters at City Point, Virginia. This was in response to Julia's desire to have them come. As Julia entered the stateroom on the River Queen, Mary Lincoln turned to her and very archly asked Julia what should be done with Jefferson Davis if he were captured by Union troops. As Julia recounted in her memoirs, she happened to catch the friendly glance of the president, and she sought to answer Mary in a way that would earn the president's praise for herself and her husband. So Julia said, I would trust him, meaning Jefferson Davis, to the mercy of our always just and gracious president. That was a big no-no. Mary Lincoln was not pleased with Julia's answer. And that was only one of several verbal joustings at City Point that led to Julia's refusal to accept Mary's invitation for the grants to go see our American cousin at Ford's Theater with the Lincolns on Friday, April 14th. Julia simply refused to go to the theater and be with Mary Lincoln that night. And in my book, I write about how Julia's refusal changed the course of history, and perhaps not Lincoln's, but very possibly Grant's history. 
he would have been sitting there, you write in the book, and the story would have been, had he not been able to save the president, that here's the general that saved the Union but was powerless to save his commander-in-chief. And it is a very human moment there. We've all had spouses, or well, I don't know that we've all had spouses, but we've all had parties that we didn't want to go to. And this here it is at the very highest level. And there's one wife, of course, that we still have yet to get to. That's Ellen Sherman. So I will do that. Part four of Lincoln's General's Wives is titled Center of Gravity, and you describe both Julia Grant, who we just talked about, how much her husband loved her and needed to be with her. Ellen Sherman is another one that you describe that way, and you say that Ellen was an equal to her husband. They grew up together and into what you describe as a marriage of equals, unlike what's described often as the typically Victorian sort of distant McClellan marriage. So introduce us to Ellen Sherman, please. Ellen Sherman, her maiden name was Ellen Ewing, grew up in Lancaster, Ohio, just up the hill from the Sherman family. When William Tecumseh Sherman was nine years old, his father died of typhoid. And his father's best friend, Thomas Ewing, Ellen's father, walked down the hill to the Sherman house and told Mary Sherman, who was left penniless with 11 children, that he would be willing to take one of the children in and raise as his own. So Mary Sherman, according to family legend, chose William Tecumseh, who was always called Cump, because he was the smartest, this young redheaded boy. And at that moment, then, he is nine years old, Ellen Ewing is four years old, and they begin to grow up as brother and sister as well as former playmates. They each went off to boarding schools almost immediately. She went to a series of Catholic schools. He went to West Point. But they kept up a steady and substantial and fascinating correspondence that turned into a long-distance romance by the time that he graduated from West Point. Their wedding was delayed by his financial woes, which were many, and her ill health, which was considerable. But by the time they did marry in 1850, They were solidly friends and lovers. They knew each other's faults and never shrank from disagreeing with each other over many issues, large and small, financial and familial, civilian and military, political. Theirs wasn't at all like the marriage of the McClellans, which was, from everything we know, sort of the iconic Victorian marriage with the strong public husband and the meek private Victorian wife. Ellen instead was very honest when she would look at her husband's virtues and his vices, and she never shrank from acknowledging them when it was in his interest to do so, as in when she met with President Lincoln to try to save his career. Her honesty and her strong Catholic faith and her really remarkable perspicacity were the source of strength for Sherman in some of the worst times in his life. Now, that leads to a perfect next question, which is about the reputation that General Sherman has and had during the war as insane, crazy, unstable. People then and now smear him that way. You speak in the book about that and how Ellen goes right at fighting this rumor and debunking it. So talk a little bit about that. How does she do what we would call today damage control? Well, Dean, lots of people heard that Sherman was crazy, but very few ever stopped to think about how it affected his family or how his wife might have reacted to it. It all came about because very early in the war, Sherman was put in command of the Department of the Cumberland, 
really against his wishes. He asked Lincoln if he could just stay a subordinate general to General Robert Anderson. And Lincoln promised him he could, but Anderson's health failed. And so Sherman was elevated to command of the Department of the Cumberland. His orders at that point were the same as Anderson's had been, to secure the very volatile border state of Kentucky for the Union, and then to march into East Tennessee and also bring it under Union control. That was an enormous assignment. And Sherman knew that he had too few troops. They were too poorly trained and too poorly armed to do it. In addition to that, his fears about the size of the enemy troops that he faced began to escalate. Day after day, he would get reports. And he began to show signs of a nervous breakdown and was later reassigned at his request to a less stressful command. So that was in October of 1861, but on December 11th, 1861, a number of newspapers around the country simultaneously carried the story, General William T. Sherman Insane, as the headline. Sherman was so rattled and depressed by what was happening to him that he told Ellen he wanted to hide. And if he'd done that, it would have completely derailed his military career if he had left at that time. But Ellen wanted to fight, and she did. She stepped forward to coordinate the family's campaign to clear her husband's reputation. She wrote to newspaper editors, to her husband's commanding officer, General Henry Halleck, and to President Lincoln. But when she didn't get an answer from the president within six days, she determined to go to Washington to see him. And she went with her father and had a meeting with Lincoln in January of 1862. Now, her meeting with Lincoln was very different from the one that Jesse had had four months earlier. Jesse's was a disaster of a meeting. Ellen's was a meeting that went very well. She asked for Lincoln's help and advice. Lincoln, who'd been favorably impressed with Sherman right after the Battle of Bull Run in July of the previous year, told them, that Sherman should do the best job he could in the subordinate position he was in then, and that would show the world that Sherman was a competent commander. Lincoln was giving them basically the same advice that he had been given and he had taken at a time when he was very depressed in his life. Ellen wanted more than just Lincoln's advice to go away and wait and let time heal this problem, but she accepted it and she encouraged Sherman to do the same. She sent her husband a complete, clear, and concise account of their meeting with the president. Unlike Jesse, she didn't use any code words or ciphers, and she urged him to do just what Lincoln said, to stay at his post and do his job. And she would tell him to do that again and again over the course of his Civil War career. Jesse Fremont has always been held up as a politically savvy woman, well ahead of her time in dealing with Lincoln and other men in political office. But my analysis of their meetings with Lincoln tell me that Ellen Sherman was far more politically astute than was Jesse. You definitely get that from the book. And I was thinking the exact same thing as I was reading it and saying, here's uh, Jesse who's raised as a boy or maybe not raised as a boy, maybe he's too strong, but who has all these opinions and all these mannerisms that are 
making her this really strong woman and really pushing her opinion out there and getting what she wants. A desk right outside her husband's office, and she's his gatekeeper, and she's the one who's going to be running things and be the chief of staff without the title. And yet here comes Ellen Sherman, and she does many wise things there. She asks Lincoln for his opinion. And I thought, what a savvy move. I mean, I know I use that word a couple of times, but what a wise thing to do in any situation where you want somebody's help. Ask them first for their advice and think of how history would have been different without her doing that. I mean, Grant certainly needed him to be his right-hand man. So this was really important at the time, not just getting upset, not getting angry, although she would have had a right to be when this rumor comes out that he's insane. We talked about traveling. We talked about Julia Grant. People can imagine how that affected her, her double vision. But Ellen Sherman had a malady, and this is also new research that you bring to us in Lincoln's General's Wives. Explain to us about this disease that she suffered from that nobody really knew about before. The disease that Ellen had is called scrofula. And one of the reasons that people have not looked into this disease and not really tried to identify what was wrong with her was that so many historians, like her husband did at times, simply felt that she was a hypochondriac. But in fact, she did have this disease, and it's a terrible disease. It was widespread at the time, often transmitted by drinking raw milk from infected cows, and it could be passed from a mother to her children in her breast milk. And we know that several of Ellen's children, I mean, she writes that they have some of the same symptoms that she had. Pasteurization, which virtually eradicated that disease, was invented by Louis Pasteur in Bingo, 1864, during the Civil War. But it was too late for Ellen and her children to benefit from it. The disease itself recurs over and over during a victim's lifetime. And it manifests itself in large, oozing boils on the neck and jaw. And they often had to have doctors lance them and drain them or they would swathe their necks in these poultices and put toxic powders on them. In my book, I put a picture of an anonymous victim of scrofula that I was able to get from the uh, medical library in Washington, D.C. It's not a picture of Ellen. There are actually very few pictures of Ellen, and I believe that the scrofula was a reason she didn't have many taken. But this picture is one that will really make you appreciate the difficulties that she had. And yet, even with that disease, she still traveled far and wide in her life. She made two trips from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States when you had to do it by ship and donkey across the Isthmus of Panama. And during the Civil War, she tried to be with Sherman as much as she could. You bring so many new things to light in the book, and it does flesh them out. You know, going through this, there were so many times that I encountered people or stories or even better understanding my own life. I mean, when I added up that 10,000 miles for Julia Grant, and then I was talking to my mom, and we said, well, let's add up your miles, you know, your mileage. And just in the first trip she took with my older sister to be with my dad on Guam, planes, trains, and automobiles, and ships, that was 10,000 miles. It was just like, whoa, you know, 
and I began to look at my mom in a very different way too, because I wrote this. This really illuminated the role of military wives more to me. But Sherman, unlike Grant, just didn't want women in camp. He didn't think it was a good idea, and he discouraged her from coming. Finally, he gave a signal that his family could come. This was right after the Battle of Vicksburg. He said they could come to a camp outside of Vicksburg he had, which was healthy. But unfortunately, though, Ellen was thrilled to join him there with the children. As they left in October, their nine-year-old son, Willie, died of typhoid. Sherman was inconsolable, and Ellen used her strong Catholic faith to shore her up and to help her children face the problem. And she sent Sherman back into battle. She never asked him to come home to care for her in her grief. She kept him in the fight. The same disease, by the way, that killed Sherman's father. And he was the same age. He would have been nine as a boy when his father died. And here he loses his son by nine. Julia Grant could have had an operation, but she never had the courage to risk one to see if it was possible to fix her eyes. But as her husband grew in stature, she thought she should scrubble up her courage and try to look her best. So I'd like you to read an account of this moment in 1863. This is the middle of the Civil War. Share with us Julia's words to her son explaining her exploration of possibly getting this operation to fix her eyes. Julia tells her son, quote, So I consulted the doctor on this, to me, most delicate subject. But alas, he told me it was too late, too late. I told the general and expressed my regret. And he drew me to him and said, Did I not see you and fall in love with you with these same eyes? I like them just as they are. And now remember, you are not to interfere with them. They are mine. And let me tell you, Mrs. Grant, you had better not make any experiments, as I might not like you half so well with any other eyes. Isn't that a lovely, lovely quote? Yeah. After reading all of Grant's letters to Julia, I can just hear him saying that and her remembering it exactly. He loved her as she was. They call their marriage one of the great love stories in American history, and you can really see why when you read Lincoln's General's Wives. And finding Sue Berry, Stereo Sue, that was such serendipity. I really think that that's what Ulysses Grant Dietz meant when he made the comment, I think you might have seen in the blurb that he wrote, where he said that he now saw his great-great-grandmother as he had never known her before. What a great honor that must have been to feel you had touched the family like that. That's really true. You know, my research into strabismus I believe, really gave me some insight into her personality and into the Grant's courtship and marriage that nobody else has revealed. You say in the book, touching upon his drinking, that he didn't leave the army because he was drunk. For one thing, he was a very small man, so and a little bit of liquor just really hit him. But he really was heartsick. He's just out there in the middle of nowhere, and they have a beautiful marriage. It was remarked upon at the time. They would hold hands well into their old age. It's just a beautiful story. I want to bring us to one final question, and this has to do with you and how you would spend an evening at the New Jersey Shore, say in Long Branch, where many of the presidents, including Grant, summered during the Gilded Age. There's Seven Presidents Park, which marks the seven presidents in the Gilded Age that came there and stayed. 
So which one of these four ladies would you choose as a companion in one of those cottages there at the shore? Nellie, Julia, Ellen, or Jesse? Those are your choices. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you asked me this question, but it's really a tough one. We've been sort of historically serious here for much of the past 30 minutes or so, but I don't want your listeners to go away without really appreciating what you've come to know how clever and funny and charming and enchanting these characters can be and how interesting their stories are. I would love to have them all visit me in that cottage at Long Branch. But if I had to choose just one, and this is really tough, (laughs) because I was almost going to change it again, change my mind again while I was making this, (laughs) answering this question. Um, It would be Nellie. Assuming that Nellie would spill the beans to me, which is a big historical assumption we always make when we ask these questions, I would love to know why she allowed those awful letters to be published and if she ever stopped loving A.P. Hill. Well, I will let people read the book and hopefully get the answers to that question and so many more in Lincoln's General's Wives. I said at the top of our interview that we'd only scratch the surface here of what is a truly riveting book on the women behind the men of the Union. I would remind readers that many more of those tales await them in the book. Collect all four Lincoln's General's Wives and see which one you would like to vacation with. And again, this is Long Branch. We're not talking on the boardwalk at Seaside Heights, any of the Jersey Shore things you've seen, those people are all from Staten Island. So Candace Shy Hooper, thank you for joining me and the best of luck with Lincoln's General's Wives. Thank you so sincerely for introducing them all to me. Thank you, Dean. It's been a pleasure. Again, the book is Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War for better and for worse. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark the link off the banner ad on our homepage for all your Amazon purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make, and it doesn't cost you so much as a stone wall. It doesn't cost you anything, My sincere thanks to Candace Shy Hooper for taking the time to travel back in time with me today and for putting a personality to the women behind Lincoln's generals. Her website again is CandaceShyHooper.com. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Well, that's it for today's installment of the History Author Show. Until Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, or next Monday's interview, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east Sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.